Those of us who are still paying back our student loans have gotten some relief since the pandemic began. But that all might be coming to an end very soon. The student loan moratorium is set to end this month. Now, if that happens, more than 40 million Americans will have to start repaying a combined $1.7 trillion in debt. President Biden hasn't given any indication that he plans to continue the moratorium, but he has confirmed he'll decide on wide-scale debt cancellation before the payment pause is over. One of the proposals on the table would forgive $10,000 in federal student loans per borrower. Later in the show, we'll hear from a professor who researched the racial wealth disparities within the student loan system. But now we're joined by Cody Hunanian, executive director of the group Student Debt Crisis. Glad to have you back on the show, Cody. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to be here to talk about this. So, Cody, this current pause, this is the sixth time that the moratorium has been extended since the pandemic began. Do you think that President Biden is going to extend the repayment pause even further? Well, I am hopeful that the president is going to do the right thing and extend the payment pause. And frankly, I I believe and our organization believes that the president, if he does, in fact, extend the payment pause, needs to do so for at least a year. I mean, you just said it. We've had six extensions since the pandemic began. This type of piecemeal approach is not the way that policy should operate. We need clear guidance with plenty of roadway for borrowers to get back on track and set up their finances for the future. Yeah. You know, $10,000 has has really become a buzzword when we talk about student loans, but that's Uh only one piece of the proposals on the table. So what are the other changes that Biden's proposing to the student loan system? Yeah, well, this administration has done some good work to try to address some of the historic uh, failures in our student loan system. You know, one of the biggest issues over the last decade has been the fact that the government promised public service workers, you know, these are nurses, social workers, firefighters, teachers, and, and others, that their student loans would be erased if they spent at least 10 years working in a public service job. To date, though, that program has failed miserably. At some point, 99% of people who applied were were denied access to this loan forgiveness that they were promised. So this administration has worked to try to fix that program. um, And we're currently, you know, working on that with the administration. So there are some positive signs. You know, as we mentioned, Biden confirmed he will make a decision on student loan forgiveness before the moratorium ends, which could be any day now. What do you think, mm-hmm. Cody? Do, mm-hmm. you, do you think he's likely to go forward with debt cancellation? Well, at this point, I think our organization and many of our 500-plus organizations, our allies in this movement, uh, do believe the president is going to take some action. But the details are what matters. So you said it, that $10,000 number is a buzzword. The president campaigned on $10,000 immediately as COVID relief, but promised to go much further than that. Mm-hmm. And so we believe the president needs to cancel much more than 10000 per borrower. And then a few other quick details that are important. We cannot have this be something that's means tested. If we do an income threshold for student debt cancellation, there will be millions of people who need this relief that are denied, and it'll create a bureaucratic mess. It'll mean that people have to fill out a ton of paperwork to prove their income, we're really afraid of a, of a kind of a, a rollout disaster like we saw with healthcare.gov uh, years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, as you mentioned, 
Biden campaigned heavily on student loans, and we know midterm elections are around the corner. So how big of a factor do you think it'll play in his decision? I think it's probably a big factor at this point. The closer we get to November, I think the more that this administration is certainly thinking about uh, the political piece. But, you know, as someone who talks to student loan borrowers every day and, and represents millions of them, we don't want this issue to become a, a political chess piece. We don't want people's finances, their, the stability of their lives, and the way they support their families to be impacted by the whims of, you know, the political landscape. So uh, I think it's part of the decision process right now, but let's put that aside. Let's really just do what's best for millions of Americans, and that would be to erase this burden. Republicans have proposed legislation to uh, eliminate the public service loan, citing that uh, it would save the government money. So can the government afford to maintain the moratorium, Mm -hmm. especially with inflation and, and a looming recession? It's, I think it's quite uh, sad that at a time where millions of Americans are calling on the president to take some sort of bold action like debt cancellation, we have others in Washington, D.C. that are trying to dismantle the kind of relief that we're already receiving. I mean, that just goes against the pale of, of everything we're hearing from people impacted by this issue. But when it comes to the budgetary argument, you know, I think let's just use our eyes and ears. Look around. We've had the payment pause since March of 2020. The sky hasn't fallen. The federal budget hasn't um, you know, fallen into pieces. We are still operating. Everything is as it was. And we have been able to still provide billions of dollars of relief to families across the country. That, I think, is the most important part here. Uh, the budgetary concerns are um, are often used as a bait and switch. The details are much more complicated. And I can assure you, our government can absolutely afford to continue this relief. Opponents of student loan forgiveness, they argue that the Department of Education doesn't have the capacity to deal with wide-scale debt cancellation, if that's what Biden decides Mm -hmm. to do, uh, and that it will actually hurt borrowers more. What do you think? Well, it's going to be a logistical challenge, and that's the issue we're, I was talking about moments ago. You know, we need to have a debt cancellation process that's as automatic and streamlined as possible. If we do not, we will risk, uh, you know, really overloading the system with uh, applications for student debt cancellation. But I don't think that should prevent us from, you know, really going after bold and transformative policies. If we cancel student loan debt, and there are, um, you know, hiccups in the rollout, you can rest assured there'll be organizations like us and like many of our allies that will work with the Department of Education Mm -hmm. and with the federal government to fix any issues that arise along the way. So we cannot be deterred just because of, um, you know, the bureaucratic obstacles, even though they are real. That was Cody Hunanian, executive director of the group Student Debt Crisis. Later on in the program, we'll talk to a financial advisor about how you can prepare for the end of the student loan moratorium. Now, if you have questions, give us a call at 866-915-WBEZ. That is 866-915-WBEZ. Thank you, Cody. Thank you for having me. All right, we're going to turn to another voice in the meantime to help us put this crisis into context Student loan debt affects many Americans, but the burden is higher for first-generation students, 
low-income students, and students of color, particularly black students. Fenaba Addo is an associate professor of public policy at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's done extensive research on the inequalities within the student loan system, and she's also the co-author of the forthcoming book, A Dream Defaulted, The Student Loan Crisis Among Black Borrowers. And she joins us now. How, welcome to Reset, Professor. Hello. Thanks for having me. So to start off, what's the breakdown of who has student loans and how much they're taking out? Oh, okay. So um, the way we like to think about it is, you know, um, there's a large percentage of students who now enter into higher education have to take on some uh, form of financial aid, mostly loan-based, in order to pursue their education. Well, we, when we look at it through the inequality lens, we see that, as you, uh, has, as you just read, we see that um, there are significant portions of the population that are overwhelmingly taking on debt or accumulating more amounts of debt. And in particular, like the work that I've done has shown that uh, black, students, black students are taking on significant amounts of debt. So, you know, on average, we have, you know, uh, it, it changes depending on the data sets or where you look at, but, you know, upwards around 30,000. Um, but black borrowers tend to have upwards of more than like forty or $50,000 worth of debt that they're accumulating pursuing their college degree. So, um, and this is independent of the, the types of institutions that they go to, um, whether they finish the degree, um, age. Um, we just see wow. black borrowers, you know, consistently um, being at the higher end of the accumulation population. So, as you said, you found that black borrowers are taking on more debt. And, and this is true for black households that have a higher net wealth, too? Yeah, that's actually one of the findings in one of our earliest papers, was that even households at the higher ends of the wealth distribution, their children were accumulating more debt than uh, black students at the lower ends, as well as white students at the higher end of their um, wealth distribution. So you connect the uh, the general wealth gap between black households uh, and white households to the student loan gap. How does intergenerational wealth play a role here? Yeah, so we, um, we show that um, due to existing um, wealth inequality within our society, in particular the racial wealth gap, which kind of shows when you look at um, kind of recent figures, black households have about um, 10 one-tenth of the wealth, the typical black households have about one-tenth the wealth of a white household. Um, I believe those numbers, uh, you know, uh, are around, you know, around $17,000 for the typical, me- the median wealth of a black household compared to about or over $171,000 of a white household. And so these households just don't have the um, liquidity to pull from to assist and help and support their their children mm-hmm. to pay for the high cost of, of college so, or costs that have shifted to these households um, um, in order to, to, to pay for this degree. And are you seeing that the gap, are you seeing that the gap in student debt between black and white students, that it's growing every year? Yes. So we actually find over the course of, so our work focused on the young adulthood period. So um, people who were of the age, you know, between the ages of around, around, let's say, 25 to about 35, that as they age, the gap increased. Um, This largely fell on the repayment side of the equation, or we like to think of what's going on after you leave college. And black borrowers were just not able to pay back their debt at the same rate as white borrowers. 
Why are for-profit colleges more likely to target black students? Wow. <laughs> so that, that's a, there, there's lots of, uh, that's a great question. Um, so one of the things we look at when we see what's happening with the for-profit um, kind of predatory nature in which they have gone after these students is that these students are more likely to qualify for federal financial aid and federal and that money can be transferred or um, directly over into pay for their education. And so the for-profits get a lot of that money, a lot of that financial, federal financial aid uh, from the students that qualify the most. And so they, their um, average tuition fees, especially the private, the private, the private um, non for-profit institutions um, can charge large amounts and these students take out significant amounts of money to, to pay for these schools mm-hmm. and that money gets directly transferred. Um, you know, so they make a lot of money off of a uh, population that qualifies for uh, you know, significant amounts of loans, either through the federal program or um, private private loans as well. Let's talk about millennials specifically. That's a, a generation that's really struggled with uh, student loans and with credit card debt. What are the disparities that you found in millennials' net wealth, Professor? Oh, uh, so yeah, this is a generation that, as you said, has bore the brunt or kind of were at the forefront of the student debt crisis. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the work that we see is that if you compare them to previous generations or the, their, their parents' generations, they are um, either taking longer to hit those kind of um, adult markers, <laughs> such as home ownership, saving for retirement, and even moving into, uh, you know, um, into, you know, I guess what would say um, committed relationships, such as cohabitation or marriage, um, with those um, with, uh, with those who have lots of student loan debt. So we definitely see this kind of like delayed uh, delayed transition into um, asset building um, that uh, their parents were able to achieve much earlier in their adulthood yeah. adult lives. Yeah. Well, based on your extensive research, do you think that a wide scale canceling of $10,000 in student debt is going to significantly help to close this gap? Or is this just a drop in the bucket? It's just a drop in the bucket. We we definitely need more, um, a a higher number uh, if we are interested in more equity based uh, kind of debt cancellation um, policy programs. So is the solution based on the pure numbers? Sorry. Is the solution yeah, forgiving the all numbers. debt, all student debt? That would be one step towards. So I, I will say that you know we never we I, I never profess the thing that the debt cancellation is going to close the wealth gap. The wealth gap, the racial wealth gap, is just too large, right? But yeah. if we do, um, but it is contributing to the ongoing persistence and the growth of the wealth gap. So. If we have total debt cancellation, as you um, suggest, then we may be some, um, you know, some closure of, of the wealth gap. Um, and then we can refocus on other areas that have also contributed to the ongoing persistence of the racial wealth gap as well. This I've, is just one piece of a, of a broader portfolio. <laughs> yeah. Right. Are, are there other changes to the student loan system that you would recommend at the policy level, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, we need to definitely, you know, address the fact that Black households and families just have less wealth or and lower resources in order to pay for college, right? So that's at the front end, we like to think of it as like the accumulation piece, and we have to think about what's going on while the students are in college accumulating a lot of this debt. Why are they taking longer to finish? Why are they accumulating so much debt? 
And then upon leaving, why is it taking them extra long to, or, or longer than uh, their white counterparts to pay back this debt? So there are lots of pieces, and, and uh, my co-author and I, Jason, likes to think of we just can't have one policy solution that's going to address this multi-pronged problem yeah. um, that, that, that it has created. Yeah. Multi-pronged is right. That is uh, Fenaba yeah. Addo, Associate Professor of Public <laughs> Policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Student debt repayment can be daunting, and some of us are unsure where to even begin. So we're going to bring an expert in to help us figure this all out. Joining me now is Yanelli Espinal, Director of Educational Outreach at NextGen Personal Finance. Hi, Yanelli. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for inviting me on. Doing well, and thank you for, for joining us. We're also taking your call, so if you have questions on what steps to take in case the moratorium does end, give us a call right now at 866-915-WBEZ. Again, 866-915-WBEZ. Yanelli, many people are overwhelmed, as you can imagine, by the size of their debt, that they, you know, they're so overwhelmed they can't even see the path forward. Right. What would you say is the first step then in, in just trying to manage loans? Right. Um, well, my experience, I had a large majority of my debt was actually credit card debt right when I got out of college. And I think it's very similar to student loan debt in that that idea that when it gets out of control and it's a certain amount that's really large, it just creates this like a fear and it's like looming over your head all the time because you just don't know when it's a realistic time frame for you to expect to be done with this debt. So the best thing that you can do that would be the very first step to kind of give you a little bit of a sigh of relief would be to actually find out what is a realistic debt payoff day. Now, this could be 30 years in the future. This could be 15 years in the future. This could be seven years or two years in the future. But it all depends on how much money you are able to contribute every month towards your loan payoff. And it also depends on the interest rate that your debt is accruing at. So your, your kind of first step would be, to log into your student loan portal and check out what are the total amounts you owe, what interest rate are each of your debts growing at, and then put that all into a debt repayment calculator so that you can spit out and see mm. what is a realistic time frame for me to expect to be done. Is it July 9th, 2027? You know, because the thing is, once you know a day, like for example, if you say July 9th, 2027, you can now write that down and it's like freeing a little bit because and, and it work gives you the ability it. to know the day. Yeah. Yeah, you can work towards it. So so that That's being right. said, talk about some more common mistakes that you have seen folks make when trying to get a hold of of their debt. So so one is not having realistic time frames in mind. That's right. That's right. I think a lot of um, young people, especially graduate college, and you just expect that you're going to be able to pay off all your debt in two or three years. And when you're five, six, seven years in and still struggling with the debt, then you kind of get frustrated and you're like putting your fist up in the air like, what's going on? This is, you know, the, the system is broken and there's so much wrong. And that's true. There's a lot wrong that is, you know, hopefully soon to be corrected within the system of borrowing student loans. But the reality is a lot of uh, misunderstanding has existed around how loan terms even work. So a lot of young people I notice in my experience working with high school and college students is that they tell me, you know, I borrowed $10,000, so I don't understand why I owe $14,000. I only borrowed $10,000. And that is a clear indication that they never understood the interest would be accruing while they're in college. Like, 
if unless the one exception to this is if you have subsidized student loans, because then, of course, you'll see the interest accruing. But when you graduate, the federal government will take responsibility for paying the interest that has accrued. And you just really need to focus on paying back the balance that you borrowed. But for the most part, in all other loan types, except for that very specific subsidized loan, you're going to be responsible for the interest accruing. So from the first day of school, when you're hanging out and studying or partying Mm -hmm. or, you know, doing whatever you're doing, yeah, interest is being added. So when you graduate, there's really no reason for anyone to believe that they're going to owe the same amount of money that they borrowed on the first day of freshman year of college. Like that just doesn't make sense. And that's why it's so important, I think, for students to be thinking about all of this while they're still in college, not just after they graduate. Exactly. And that's honestly one of the biggest things that I notice. Um, I pick it up on students when they're talking to me. So, for example, I have a mentee that I work with every few months. We meet up and make sure that, you know, her um, her resume looks good and that, you know, she, if she needs any support with anything. And one time we met recently, a couple months ago, she asked me to help her, like, think through her student loans. And then I said, well, tell me the situation. And the first thing she said was, when I graduate, I'm going to owe this much money. Mm-hmm. And I stopped her and I said, oh, I'm going to I'm going to pause you right there. Because you owe that money right now. Right. It's not when you graduate that you're going to owe. You need to change your mindset. You need to shift your mindset right now and understand that you currently owe this. And you've owed it since the day you signed the paperwork. And I think I know that that's scary. And I definitely don't mean to kind of, you know, scare anyone straight or anything like that. But I just think that this could really help us all get on the same page about borrowing money in general, period. Like, of course, this relates to student loan debt, but it also relates to a car loan, to a home mortgage loan, to a credit card loan, or to a personal loan, yeah. in which case, as soon as you borrow the money, listen, you owe the debt immediately. It's not it's some point in the future that your future self will start owing like you owe now. Yeah. Well, folks, as you can tell, yanelli has got some great information. So if you've got questions, call us now at 866 915 WBEZ. That's 866-915-WBEZ. Let's go to a couple of callers who have been standing by. First up, here's Jill in Oak Park. Hi, Jill. Hi. Um, First of all, what your uh, guest is saying is just so important. I'm a parent uh, and I took out parent loans. Um, One week into my daughter's college experience, my husband died. I had to take all this over. Did not, not a very good financial person and didn't realize until recently, um, how much I had accrued, and you know, and um, and also the interest and all of that. I'm retiring in two years at this point, and at, when they're asking us to start paying it back, I have to start paying back eight hundred dollars a month. Wow. Okay. Um, which is going to be really difficult, you know. But um, and it looks like it's going to. I mean, first of all, it looks like maybe after ten years. Um, I'm a I'm a public school teacher, but I am retiring in two years. So okay. um, it, it looks like after trying to pay it back for 10 years, it, it gets wiped away. Also, does she have any suggestions for me on, you know, lowering the interest rate or any, well, or paying it back? Yeah. Like okay. Yeah, right. we'll, we'll let Yanelli address that for you, Jill. Thank you so much. So, so Yanelli, financial advice for Jill then, you know, to personally prep for this $800 a month and also retire in two years. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I definitely um, think it's really important to set aside your retirement funds. And I would not recommend using your retirement funds to pay this because one of the big things that a lot of parents do is when they take plus loans, they feel like they've now compromised their retirement 
But the truth is your retirement assets are sheltered. And that's one of the beautiful things about the way the tax law is written in our country is so that if you have been putting money aside into a 403B, which um, you know many teachers have, or um, like a, an IRA, a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA, um, that, that those funds are sheltered so that if you experience bankruptcy, if you have any student loan debt, if the government, if you owe funds, that they won't be able to take your retirement money because the reality is you need to be able to have a dignified retirement after your long working career as a teacher. You deserve that. And so I definitely um, would not recommend uh, feeling like you have to now go dip into your retirement to pay this. You can actually work with the loan provider and figure out what are um, what makes sense, right? It, it, typically, these PLUS loans are going to be repaid over 10 years, but they do have an extended payment plan that can really lengthen the term up to 25 years. And so I would recommend you check out the extended payment plan so that you don't feel like you know, that $800 a month is probably, uh, realistically, it's probably trying to get you to pay the debt burden off in 10 years, but you might need to double that and say, actually, it's more realistic that I'll pay it off in 20 years. Mm -hmm. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. And then because you're a teacher, I would take a look at a few different options. Obviously, the federal student loan forgiveness, uh, federal service loan forgiveness program won't really um, apply to parent plus loans, which is really painful, but um, you should check out teacher loan forgiveness, right? Because there's, um, a, a, depending on the amount that you owe, they could either be $17,500 or $5,000 write-off, depending on the subject area that you saw and, like, what your eligibility, um, you know, qualifications would be. But that's definitely something that I highly, highly recommend. And I, because specifically that you're a teacher, um, I would definitely say that it makes a lot of sense for you to, you know, consider meeting with someone who can actually give you very specific feedback about teacher retirement planning and teacher um, and teachers paying off student loan debt, yeah. because this is one of the things that I feel like a lot of teachers don't get resources um, around. There's an entire like uh, accreditation that is meant specifically for helping teachers to pay off their student loan debt, which is something that I've only recently come to learn about. Um, but you can look that up. It's CSLP. It's a certified student loan planner. So they can help you um, to actually create a plan that works for you. And especially as uh, somebody who's been a teacher for so long, being in public service means you should work with a certified student loan professional um, or planner to really get a plan that works for you. Because, you know, let's be real, $800 a month in retirement is yeah, very steep. So that they can is help a lot. You with that. That's a lot. Great advice. Uh, let's jump to Jean, who is in West Dundee. Hi, Jean. What's your question? Hi, I was just wondering what I could do to find out uh, how much I owe because mostly my parents were taking care of all my student loan debt and then it was the responsibility is now mine, so it's $800 a month, but I really don't know who I'm paying it to or how much I have left, so where can I find information like that? Thanks, Jean. Yeah, good question. This is such a good question. And I think a lot of other people probably had that same experience because their family members probably helped them sort everything out. And then now they've graduated and are like, okay, where's all this information? So for you, you want to find out from your family, did you um, have any private student loans or was it just federal aid? Federal aid comes from the federal government of the United States, whereas private aid might come from you know financial institutions and private banks, et cetera. So you want to know, do you have one or the other or both? Um, for your federal student aid, all of that information is going to be available for you in your portal. You will have to create a username and password and log into that using the website studentaid.gov. And everything that you have questions about, I promise, is there for you. There's an FAQ section that you can look at under um, understanding your federal aid. 
and there's also um, managing your loans. You can actually see how can you apply for income-driven repayment plan if it's really high right now. How can you apply for um, public service forgiveness if that's something that you're eligible for? Um, and there's so many other uh, you know options there for you to check out. But step one would be to log in studentaid.gov. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, that's Yaneli Espinel, who's the Director of Educational Outreach at NextGen Finance. She's here giving us advice for those of us, you know, anticipating the end of the student loan repayment pause. If you've got a question for Yaneli, the number is 866-915-WBEZ. Let's hear from Emily in Arlington Heights. Hi, Emily. What's your question? Hi, thank you so much. Um, I had both a, a comment and a question, and my background is that I took out debt um, as an undergraduate student, which my parents shared with me, and I did continue to pay that. I think I had, I consolidated after I graduated and had a rate of about 3.5, which was manageable even on my nonprofit worker um, salary. But at 29, I went to graduate school, and I signed on the dotted line for what ended up being a little bit under almost $100,000 in debt, I think, at the end of the day, after the years that I spent there. At the time, I remember thinking, well, I guess this is just what Americans do to get a higher education. Um, Looking back, I take responsibility for signing on the dotted line. Um, But when we talk about student loan debt relief, I mean, I was telling the person who answered my call, of course, I'd love to see the balance drop by ten dollars or $20,000 overnight. Um, But I do wonder about the ethics of that, where the money is actually coming from, which I didn't feel the representative Cody from the student advocacy organization really answered. I mean, on a a granular economic level. So that's number one. Number two is I do feel strongly that um, there have been outrageous interest rates for graduate loans. I had several loans for several thousand dollars each at over 8.5% interest which I was only able to pay partially because my father died seven years ago and I got half of a life insurance policy he had maintained with his state job. Otherwise, I don't know how I would have, um, you know, just looking every single month before there was a pause on on the um, interest accrual. So with that ending, I mean, I do, I do. So so what do you want Yanelli to address for you today? What's, what's your question? Uh, Well, two questions. One is, where is the debt relief money coming from? Let's say that does pass. Where is it really coming out of? And, you know, can I feel like a responsible citizen knowing, like, whose money am I taking if I accept that debt relief, number okay. one? And number two, I am still stuck now with very high interest rate loans from my graduate debt that mm-hmm. I I grapple with whether or not I should consolidate them, because if I do, I won't qualify for... I see. Okay, um, so let's let's jump into it then, because right. we're, we're, we're almost out of time. Right. So, Yanelli, if you can pick up and help Emily yeah. out there. Yeah, so two, two great questions, and I think a lot of people have similar ones. So for your first one, who pays for student loan debt forgiveness? The simple answer is taxpayers. Um, taxpayers will take on that. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, the government is collecting taxes from all of us in order to create uh, income for itself. And there's other ways the government creates income, but this generally is is one main primary source of income is taxpayers paying their taxes. Um, and so one of the things I will share with you, I actually follow um, Nika Booth, who is a great uh, social media creator on Instagram. Her handle is um, Debt Free Gonna Be. 
And I and from her, I recently learned that, you know, we have to start thinking about this a little differently because I totally understand the feeling of like, oh, no, but then I'm going to be burdening taxpayers with debt that I took on. Uh, but that's the way the tax system works, right? Like, for example, I pay taxes every year that go into helping all kinds of things that I don't actually take advantage of. For example, I've never been unemployed, but yet unemployment taxes come from our tax paid our tax paying dollars, as well as um, you know people who uh, put their children in UPK or public school. A lot of those dollars come from taxpayers or property taxes, and yet you know I don't have children, I, and I don't know if I ever will. But I'm happy to contribute to our our system and be a taxpayer to contribute to the way that our country is able to take care of people when they're really in need, for example, at a time where they can't afford a private education for their child or when they're unemployed and they need to collect unemployment benefits. Um, or when we have broken bridges and roads that need to be repaired, like this is what taxpayers are, are paying for. Yeah. So just, you know, yes, it's true. Taxpayers will pay for this. Um, but I think that that's the way the system was built to help alleviate a lot of, you know, citizens having a difficult time in different instances. Um, and then for the second question, which was really thinking about, should I consolidate? I would absolutely say that you should wait because the reality is if you consolidate your private loans with your federal loans right now, if the Biden administration or any future administrations were to offer any federal relief by the fact that you've now combined your private and federal loans into a consolidated loan, you will no longer qualify. So I would wait at least until some clarity um, has been shared around the federal uh, potential for federal forgiveness. And then that way you can actually qualify for that, which you are you know, entitled to, especially as somebody who's worked in the nonprofit sector. You've put in yeah. so much work and effort and service. And you know, here's a way for taxpayers to serve you back. We'll have to leave it there. That is Yanelli Espinal, Director of Educational Outreach at NextGen Personal Finance. Thank you so much. Great advice. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.